Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker. The chair will put Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker. The bill is passed. We've created a commitment to America. Those in favor say aye. All eyes are on the House, and we still do not have a speaker. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Control, a podcast where we attempt to look around the corner at the challenges and priorities facing the 2023 Congress. I'm one of your hosts, Annalise Keller. And I'm Brendan Buck, your other host. Hope you all had a wonderful break. What a start to 2023. Um, yeah, this podcast is called Control. Uh, I don't think we could have named it any better. The House is still in the middle of trying to figure out who is going to control the speaker's gavel. Um, this has been a, uh, a week for the history books. If you are a regular listener to this podcast, I think you may, um, some of this may seem familiar what's going on on the floor. We had a really good conversation before the break about the sort of, uh, untested process that we're seeing on the floor right now. Uh, as we talk to you at this moment, it is Thursday afternoon. We're in the middle of the seventh ballot. Uh, our former president, Donald Trump, just got his first vote. So congratulations to him on that. Um, yeah, so so what a week. I mean, um, we've been been talking about the possibility of this happening for a while. Um, Kevin McCarthy has found himself with a much larger block of opposition than perhaps we talked about before. Um, you know, there was obviously the five folks who were who were out there publicly turned into closer to, to 20. Uh, and so right now he's trying to figure out how to fight back. Um, we've been in a bit of a stalemate, uh, as folks probably know, uh, the same 20 folks voting the, the same way over and over again. Uh, today, I think his goal really is to not have any further losses. They are in the middle of negotiations uh, with at least some of these dissenters about what could potentially break the logjam. I don't think there's any hope that this all gets entirely resolved today or even in the real near term. Uh, it seems like this could be going on for, for quite a while and with significant impacts on what this means for the House, its operations. Uh, as somebody who worked for two speakers, uh, you know, it, it's, it's hard to watch. I, I, I hate to see what the House has descended into. Um, but it's a fight that, frankly, has been a long time coming, um, and its outcome uh, will say a lot about what this House looks like. Yeah, I think a lot of the dynamics that we discussed before the break um, have kind of been playing out just over these last few days. Um, and Brendan, as you mentioned, having worked for two former speakers, I kind of feel like this topic and everything that's going on is a little bit you know, of, of your Super Bowl here. Um, so, so we're lucky to have you. And I, I know you've been talking to lots of sources and folks on the Hill to share with us the latest. Um, but, you know, one of the big questions, obviously, is like, where do we go from here? Um, you know, and, and in my mind, ta taking a step back just from the procedure and these, you know, now we're on the seventh vote, which I suspect they'll continue. But it's interesting to look at the context of what this means for the next two years. Um, you know, I'm not the first person to say this, but I think it is a harbinger of what's to come. Um, I'm certainly glad that we're not in a position where we're operating under, you know, a three-month CR, for example. I think the Senate kind of realized smartly that we were going to have to pass a budget to at least give these guys a little bit more time to, like, get their stuff together. So, 
you know, I'm certainly glad that we don't have another budgetary fight like um, in our immediate future. Um, I think things like the debt ceiling, when that comes due, like that is just going to be a almost imminent shutdown, I think. I don't really know. I mean, there are members that are already saying they want a commitment from McCarthy today that he is willing to shut down the government over that debt limit fight. Yeah. And the, so the concessions are, are starting to to roll out. And I think they're going to have really long lasting impacts. And I think we should probably get into them uh, in a little detail to help kind of, uh, people understand what's in store. So let's let's get beyond this speaker's ballot uh, race for a minute. And I'm sure we'll come back to it, of course. But I, I want to talk a bit about the things that Kevin McCarthy has put on the table this week to try to bring back some of these these 20. Um, we've talked on this podcast quite a bit about uh, the motion to vacate. That is the procedural mechanism to effectively vote to remove a speaker. Uh, when I was in the speaker's office with Boehner and Ryan, uh, any one member could trigger a vote on that at any time. And if Democrats uh, voted along with uh, a handful of Republicans, you could depose the speaker. Uh, Nancy Pelosi changed that rule so that uh, it's much harder to use. Not just any one member could do it. Uh, not surprisingly, these members insisted that they go back to the old way of doing it. Kevin McCarthy put on the the table that he would lower the threshold to where if, if five members want to have a vote on removing the speaker, uh, that, that you could trigger that. Uh, and now today we're seeing that he is uh, officially putting back on the table the idea of just a single member. And what that means is that if you're Speaker of the House, any one member feels like you are not living up to their expectations, they could move to get rid of you. And with just a four-seat majority, and I don't know how Democrats would vote, but if Democrats vote to remove the speaker, just four people, five people, uh, could could seal your fate, and you would be out of the speakership. And so that's a really tough way to live, and I can't think of any organization that would run itself that way. Um, and so that's tough. But I think actually... One thing, you know, there are a few other concessions that we, we can talk about. I know you're really interested in the, the Super PAC deal that was struck uh, this week. Uh, but the other one that I really want to make sure that we people appreciate is the Rules Committee. It sounds boring, but it's very important. Uh, everybody understands that the House is made up of committees, most of them uh, policy committees with various jurisdiction. The Armed Services Committee deals with the military. The Ways and Means Committee deals with taxes and health care. Something called the Rules Committee. This is effectively... The Speaker's Committee, and I will concede it didn't. It wasn't always the Speaker's Committee, but in recent decades, um, it, it has become such. But it is the committee that decides the legislative agenda on the floor. Before a bill can come to the floor, the Rules Committee needs to meet and set the terms of debate. And one of the things that these folks are asking for is representation on the Rules Committee. Um, now, it's just I want to really stress this. The Rules Committee decides what bills come to the floor. That is typically something that is chosen by the leadership. If you have new members, conservative members who don't agree with leadership, populating that committee, the Speaker no longer has control of the agenda. This is a committee where they usually have a super majority for the, for the, for the, uh, for the majority party just to make sure that, that there's no scenario under which they can't do what they want to do. It's usually nine, for, nine members for the majority, four members for the minority, a very large spread so that if for some reason 
one member or two members can't get along with go along with whatever the leadership wants to do, they can still pass it out of committee, bring a bill to the floor. Freedom Caucus is asking to have, uh, I've seen two, three, as many as four people on that committee. And if you do the math, and it's normally a nine to four spread, if you have three Freedom Caucus members who don't like what leadership wants to bring up, Democrats almost always vote no in rules committee on, on things you're trying to bring up. Three Republicans go the other way. You're then looking at a 7-6 vote against bringing things to the floor. So um, I think this is something that's going to come up uh, a lot in the in these negotiations. But if that becomes the, the rule where they put at least, or the, the deal, where they put at least three Freedom Caucus members on the rules committee, I think folks just need to appreciate that that means at any time the Freedom Caucus could team up with Democrats and stop the legislative agenda for the speaker cold. Again, this is, you know, 10% of the Republican conference that is just going to cause just entire dysfunction. 10% of the the conference getting, you know, basically everything they want, which is not, again, not how any other normal organization would ever allow itself to be run. And you're right, Brendan, I do want to talk about the super PAC deal that was struck, but I want to quickly go back to the motion to vacate because I did see um, that there are a few of these members that are saying, um, these, you know, rebel members, whatever you want to call them, that are saying, well, you know, we would use this responsibly. We wouldn't just be abusive of this power. Um, I mean, I I don't see how there are any, there's no assurances. There's no assurances. And well, I guess there is, I, I will concede there's a bit of precedent for that. So when Paul Ryan reluctantly took the speaker's gavel, he wanted to get rid of the rule. Um, and in all the conversations with the Freedom Caucus, um, you know, we, we said we were going to do it eventually, but basically had a handshake agreement that uh, they wouldn't use it against him. And, you know, we wouldn't like move to get rid of it right away. And we never eventually did. Um, Pelosi ended up ended up doing it. Um so, like, I guess there is precedent for saying, like, we, 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 don't, we don't plan to use it against you. But when you have such a small majority and there are going to be people who probably aren't party to this deal, you know, so if Kevin McCarthy gets there, it will be with Matt Gates voting against him, like no question. And so is Matt Gates promising that he'll never use a motion to vacate if it goes down to one? I, I, I doubt it. Um, so yeah, everything, like all of this revolves around the fact that the the majority is so small. Um, none of these problems would probably exist if they had, you know, had a healthy 20 something seat majority. So I I share your concern that the motion to vacate could be a real, real problem. And I think too, in, in speaking with, you know, Hill staff and, and, just other folks around this right now. I think there's a real frustration um, with the with the folks that are supportive of McCarthy, um, you know, who want to see him to be speaker, but are watching him give each of these concessions to this very small group of people. I mean, in particular, when you look at people like, you know, Robert Adderholt, for example, and other appropriators who are who, you know, McCarthy is essentially saying some of these rogue members are going to be cutting the line to get certain gavels on subcommittees for committees like appropriations. I mean, you know, I don't think it's enough to turn these, you know, rank and file Republicans against McCarthy, but it's certainly not get it. You know, you're certainly not getting goodwill there amongst your conference. It it may make be enough to turn people. I don't know. Like, so this is a great example of how they move the goalpost. Originally, this conversation was about they want people on the steering committee. The steering committee is the committee that kind of decides who's on, on what committee. Um, they've moved past putting people on the steering committee, and now they're making very specific demands about who gets 
what role on what committees directly from the speaker. Um, it's just, it's, it's extortion, um, you know, plain and simple. Um, and uh, if, you are, if you were in line to be the next subcommittee chairman on this committee and Kevin McCarthy turns to you and says, uh, hey, sorry about that. That's no longer your gavel at the subcommittee. I'm handing it over to this Freedom Caucus person um, because he took me hostage. Man, this, this, that person's probably been like making plans for how they're going to run their subcommittee for months. You know, they're, they've got all their grand ideas of what they're going to do. And now they're out of luck. Yeah. Right. I mean, no, that's, it's that's, to- that's extortion. You're totally right. Um, but I do. I, I want to bring us to this club for growth agreement. Um, I know we talked about this on the podcast before, but one of the gripes of the Freedom Caucus is um, the Congressional Leadership Fund, which is seen as a campaign extension of McCarthy, um, and they're operating in congressional primaries. Uh, one of the initial letters from the Freedom Caucus members was pushing back against this as a demand, like they wanted CLF not to get involved in primaries. Um, And so now we have this deal that was cut last night by Club for Growth, which is kind of seen as the hard right uh, campaign. You know, they, they get involved in lots of races across the country to bolster their kind of hard hard right candidates. So now we have these two organizations coming together and Club for Growth as a result is saying that they um, are going to support McCarthy for leader with this condition that CLF will no longer engage in supporting candidates, uh, picking candidates in open, safe primary seats, Republican, of course. So I thought this was interesting for a few reasons. Um, I mean, one, I think that this is giving CLF like a lot of leeway to say, you know, safe, open seats. So, you know, I, th- I think that they'll end up kind of finding ways to to target any of these seats that they want to be playing in. So in that respect, I think it's, you know, maybe not as as good of a deal as it may look on paper. But then at the same time, I mean, this is another one of the concessions that McCarthy is giving that they're asking for. So I think it, you know, we've seen a lot of shifting goalposts. So I think it's just another, you know, here we are, we've got to... Um, you know, see McCarthy basically giving these folks everything they want, and they're still sort of saying, no, it's not enough. Um, And I think that kind of gets to the heart of the issue. Like, so for example, with Bob Good out of Virginia, you know, he's kind of has been saying, I will never support McCarthy. And it all, you can trace it all back to his primary. He ran against an incumbent Republican. Which is the, hold on. Yeah, he's mad because he took out an incumbent. That's what they're supposed to do is defend incumbents. Yeah, it's true. It's remarkable. I mean, it's it's absolutely remarkable. So this guy runs against an incumbent Republican, beats him in the primary. So he's upset that McCarthy did not support him in the primary. Following his primary victory, McCarthy spent millions to get him across the finish line to win this seat. He's also complained on the record that he's upset that McCarthy did not call him quickly enough after his victory. So, you know, again, like there's nothing that McCarthy can do for this person at this point because it's all about ego. Yeah, it's so incredibly petty. So this this had the air of a major concession but i actually think it is of relatively limited impact so it is and i gotta say talk about your sort of ultimate backfires um it was not the norm during 
speakerships I was a part of to have CLF, and we keep saying CLF, this is the associated with leaderships outside super PAC. It raises lots of money and helps elect Republicans. Um, it is again, sort of, it's, it's considered the, the leaderships outside political organization it has a lot of muscle. Um, in my era, it was very uncommon for CLF to spend any money in primaries. Um, we just didn't play in primaries. There's so many races. It's so hard to kind of understand, you know, the contours and frankly, having the leadership folks, you know, back you doesn't necessarily always work out well for, uh, people in a Republican primary. So we didn't even do it a lot in the first place. And the McCarthy folks got more engaged in primaries for sure. They, they definitely were involved a little more than we were, but they weren't involved in a lot. I mean, we're talking about a handful of races. Um, but what they ended up doing was kind of coming out and beating their chest after the primary season and saying, you know, we did a, we, you know, we intervened in primaries. This is what they should have been doing all along. Um, this is going to allow us to have a governing majority. Let's stop back and, and take a look at where we are right now. Do we have a governing majority because of the way CLF in, was engaged in primaries? No. Um, they, so it was all a bit overstated. What it ended up doing, though, was making some of these conservative members have the perception that McCarthy was running around and blocking every conservative in every primary, which it just wasn't. It wasn't doing that. So CLF coming out and saying they're not going to be involved in a certain subset of primaries is frankly not that big of a deal. Um, but, you know, look, he's put all of these things on the table and they've gone through the seventh vote and nobody changed their vote again. So uh, we clearly don't have a deal locked in um, at this point. So um, maybe that'll get all get undone. Who knows? So, um, uh, you know, we, 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 we I imagine we'll now wind back up and, and try to do this again and they'll continue having these negotiations and McCarthy will continue to have to put things on the floor or um, excuse me, on the table um, and see if we get there. Well, I think it's quite a contrast, too, of what, you know, Leader McConnell's doing over on the Senate side, right? I mean, he's kind of saying we're going to take a little bit of a different tact from what Senator Scott did when he ran the NRSC, and we're going to do a little bit more involvement in, in primaries. Um, so, well, that'll all be interesting to see how it plays out. Um, but I want to move us back to, like, what's going to happen next. And obviously, we don't know. This is very fast-moving every hour it every fast? minute it's, it feels like kind of slow moving to me but yes well i feel like we have a new development i guess i'll say um no real outcomes but new developments every every 15 30 minutes um but i do want to talk a little bit about like what's what are the possibilities of happening next how likely do we think they are it seems certain that you know they'll continue this voting until you know or maybe they'll they'll vote to adjourn i've i've heard they might vote to adjourn for you know a 72 hour period um you know i think i think you mentioned this at the beginning brendan but we were all a little surprised to see that from the first vote to the second vote mccarthy kind of wasn't able to pull back some of those folks that we thought were just going to vote against him on ballot one and then kind of come over to his side so we didn't really have that showing of strength that we think that I personally think he kind of needed from ballot one to ballot two. So, you know, there's conversations about Republicans working with Democrats. I don't think that's going to happen at all. I think many people are saying, you know, not a possibility, you know, no chance. Um, there's conversations around what people are calling a consensus speaker. Um, you know, obviously, Jim Jordan has gotten a lot of votes. Um, so, Brendan, what do you I mean, what do you think? Walk us through some of these potential outcomes and what you think about their likelihoods. 
Sure. I will walk through some scenarios, but I will not make any predictions. And I, I, think, I think anybody should be careful about, uh, if anybody tells you with great confidence what's going to happen, don't, don't trust that person. So um, I do think that we need to be prepared for the possibility that this lasts several weeks. Um, you know, I, I am in touch with, with some folks close to this, and they seem pretty, pretty dug in. And this has become something bigger than just Kevin McCarthy. It is about who is in charge of the conference. And a lot of these members, the overwhelming majority of the conference shows Kevin McCarthy, and they have a choice they're going to make. Are, are they willing to stick it out and say, we're not going to let 10% of this conference decide the direction for everybody else? Forget Kevin McCarthy. It's not about Kevin McCarthy. It's about, are we going to let you win and take us over? And, and that's the question that they're going to have. And I think Kevin... Um, is is making that same point to them. And that's why his best path to victory is going to be time and pressure. Obviously, he's going to have to negotiate some things. He's already doing that. But he may have to just wait it out. And maybe some time will eventually get people to see things differently. We, we could go a week and nothing change. And eventually, they, they, they kind of give up steam. Um, maybe more people start to turn on or you've already seen some big uh, Fox News personalities uh, come pretty hard at some of these members. So it's not like they could endure this forever, but they could certainly endure it endure it for some time. So Well, they can certainly fundraise off of it in the meantime as well. I mean, we've seen, you know, Matt Gaetz sending out lots of fun, fundraising emails in this time. So, I mean, there is, I guess I would say, I, I agree. I think that they can't go on forever, but they can certainly, you know, continue to enjoy this limelight that they feel like and this relevancy that they feel like they're getting something from. Absolutely. And, and relevancy is the, the right word. I mean, that's what they, they crave. Uh, and it, it's tough to go into a battle of wills against a group of people who are frankly radicals and love a fight. And that's what makes them radicals in the first place. They love the fight and that's what they always want. So, I mean, I think they're, I think both sides would, would be digging in. So it, it, but I guess to, my point is if, if, if Kevin McCarthy is to win, it's going to take a long time and it's going to take him and his backers showing that they're not going to fold. That requires suffering a lot of failures, a lot and just being comfortable with that. And that's hard to do. And, and who's going to go wobbly, wobbly first. So, you know, that's potentially what, what could happen. Everybody of course wants to talk about, um, the, you know, who's option number two, what does that look like? I, I continue to think that no real other option can emerge until Kevin McCarthy sees that this is over. Um, if somebody comes and tries to directly challenge him, uh, I think you're going to see a lot of his allies get their backs up, say, hold on, we're not, I'm, never, I'm now I'm never whoever, you know, I'm never going to vote for that person. Um, so for, for, you know, to actually be able to enter door number two, I think Kevin McCarthy needs to close door number one himself. Um, but that's not a fast process either. And I think there's a lot of open questions about um, what that would look like. Do they just try to rally a new name and, and kind of test the waters uh, on a live vote for somebody else, hoping maybe they have 218 votes? Do they sort of say, hey, time out, let's take a week and do a real like leadership election where we, you know, have a couple people and they, um, they run for it? Probably not, but probably the more likely scenario is um, 
you know, someone else emerges and then they slide right into the same position that Kevin McCarthy is having to negotiate with these folks to get their votes. Some of these people have said they're not going to vote for anybody in leadership. So Steve Scalise all of a sudden finds himself, if he's the next person up, negotiating with the same people and frankly, having a lot less to to offer because Kevin McCarthy has already given away the store. I mean, we're at the point where there's almost nothing more to give. Some of these concessions that they're talking about are um, they're they're extraordinary. If you're sort of an insider in the House, the, uh, the the specific positions on committees that they're asking for, the Rules Committee stuff is just like when I first saw somebody mentioning Rules Committee stuff weeks ago, I you know laughed it off because it's so preposterous. But here we are. Um, so if it's the next person, I just don't think people, people, there seems to be this kind of assumption, well, if Kevin McCarthy would just get out of the way, we could end this. It, not so fast, like slow down. Um, so uh, you know, which, which direction it goes, I don't know, but I don't see a direct challenge. I see eventually either Kevin McCarthy wears them down over a very long time, or at some point he decides he's not the person, and then we have a whole other round of this. So uh, buckle up. This is not ending anytime soon. Yeah, I think that's a really good point about whoever, you know, this person who who emerges, which it seems like it matters less about who this person is and more about McCarthy anointing them as his, you know, successor to coalesce that, you know, 200, his his conference share over to that person. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're, they're not going to have any bargaining chips. I mean, maybe they get a handful of the never Kevin people just by the virtue of having a different name. Um, but they're, you know, certainly not going to be able to extract anything else. Yeah. And will you allow me to openly mock the idea of Democrats working with moderate Republicans to elect a speaker? I mean, come on. Um, I, I understand that like we need to start getting creative here, but this is not the West Wing. This is not a movie. That's not how this works. Um, and let me just try, if I can, to to explain the dynamics that would never in a million years allow that to happen. The House is a majoritarian institution. Uh, the way that it has worked for many, 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 many years is the House majority calls the shots. The minority gets almost nothing. And that sounds maybe, um, I don't know, that, that doesn't sound like uh, a friendly approach to, to governance, but it's just the way that it works. And it's just the mindset of everybody there. And the idea that the majority would turn to the minority to give them power on its on its own is, is just unbelievable to me. Um, and I just cannot fathom it. But more to like the practical way that would have to work is they'd have to give stuff to Democrats. Democrats are not just going to bail Republicans out on their own. Have you seen how gleeful they are on the floor? Joe Biden comes out of the White House and says, not my problem. Um, like, this is pure politics. And I know a lot of people want to, you know, have the perception of the Democratic Party as the more serious and the governance party and the party about democracy. Look, they're not going to help Kevin McCarthy. They're just not. Or they're not going to help anybody else. The idea that there's some non-member who's going to take it and be a caretaker is is absurd on its face. But even if you entered those conversations, Democrats would ask for things. They would ask for some type of power-sharing agreement. And let me just tell you, I appreciate the handful of members who are floating this idea. It would set the House Republican conference on fire if you turned to them and said, oh, by the way, I just cut a deal with Democrats. We're going to give them control of certain committees. We're going to let them bring up certain bills that they want to. 
the place would erupt. Like and not to imagine, or um, you know, not to leave off what it would do to you know your constituents back home. I mean, if you you know if you become the person who's cut the deal, right? It would be the most volatile political situation I can imagine. And people are, are, are framing it as, well, we'll have a you know a bipartisan go. Like no, the place would burn down. I, I not burn down literally, but um, that's been too serious of a threat, unfortunately, um, people would just lose their minds, absolutely lose their minds. It would just never happen. Whoever becomes that speaker, they would kick them out immediately. Just, I understand people want to get creative at this point, but it's just not going to happen. Yes, I've heard and read and had friends call and share these extremely outlandish ideas of what they think some of these conversations might be happening on the floor between Republicans and Democrats. And it is entertaining, but I completely agree. I don't think it's likely. Um, So, okay, one other possibility that we talked about um, to a lesser extent before the holidays was this, this idea of a rule change, you know, to make the House function a little bit more similarly to the Senate, where we have kind of a plurality um, you know, I've, I've seen some rumblings about that, but, you know, still, I think we both are in agreement that that's not not much of a possibility at this point. Well, I mean, how does that work right now? Hakeem Jeffries is easily winning a plurality of the of the vote. So switching over to a plurality only elects a, a Democratic speaker. I guess the rumblings that we're hearing is if you change it to a plurality, you're basically daring these rebels to change their vote or else Hakeem Jeffries will be the Speaker of the House. And I don't understand how that would even operate with somebody from the minority leading the House when they don't have the control of the, they don't have, they don't have a majority of the members. I I, I don't know how that would work. So it would basically be kind of daring them uh, to do that. But let's remember, as we explained uh, on this podcast last time, to do anything, you have to have 218 votes. So you'd have to have 218 members willing to change the threshold by which you become speaker. Um, that seems very unlikely to set up a situation where Hakeem Jeffries could be the speaker. I also just don't see um, these people voting in a way that helps Kevin McCarthy sort of get out of his problem. If they're going to get him out of his problem, they'll just vote for him at, at the end of the day. So again, points for creative creativity all along. And, they, and I guess there is precedent for this back in the 1800s. But it's just not really practical right here. This is going to be resolved by Republicans coming around to somebody eventually. And it just may take them a long time to to realize where they're where that where that needs to go. So we've talked a lot too about this off ramp for conservatives for the Freedom Caucus. Um, I think Kevin McCarthy is kind of offered them every off-ramp possible, every win that they've asked for. Um, so so I kind of want to ask this question or talk about this a little bit. What do we think is the off-ramp for Kevin McCarthy at this point, if we think there is one? Um, because I know, obviously, he's saying that he wants to stick around, but there's a lot of rumblings from the conservative side that, you know, it's time for him to step aside. I mean, I think people rightly or wrongly feel like, you know, we're kind of at this impasse and he has given all of these concessions. Um, So, you know, apart from finding that person and anointing them, which, as we said, kind of still you have the same set of problems. I mean, is there any way for McCarthy to take an take an exit ramp that makes any kind of sense? You mean in terms of him uh, stepping aside? 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know that he can really get any. I mean, no, like if 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 he decides, you know, he's not going to get it. I think it's going to him him coming to a realization. It's going to be some of his closest allies probably having to come to him and saying, Kevin, you left it all on the field. You fought the important fight. You didn't, you know, you didn't back down. You didn't, you know, you took the fight to them on the floor. Um, but at some point, this is doing more harm than it is good. We are, you know, they are absolutely at fault, but um, we need we need to move forward. We have to start getting things done, and you're just not the guy, and he needs to come out and acknowledge that. And I do think if there's going to be an alternative, and, you know, if we, if we want to banter about some names, I guess we can, um, but uh, I think he's going to have to clear the way for that person directly. Um McCarthy has a lot of allies who are, you know, fighting with him and he needs to give permission to them to vote for, for somebody else. Remember, whoever this is needs to get 218 votes themselves. Kevin McCarthy is going to have to vote for whoever this person is. So that's why I don't think you can kind of have a direct challenge because, you know, you don't want to get everybody kind of, you know, plausible candidates fighting with each other in a way that they, you know, refuse to vote for each other. So, um, it may be a long time coming, but Kevin McCarthy may at some point say, I can't get there. I'm never going to get there. Um, I need somebody else. And he'll, he'll kind of have to graciously bow out. Um, and that will be really unfortunate, but it's a very real possibility on, on the table right now. Yeah. Do you think if we start seeing some of this 20 move back to McCarthy and we get to a position where it's shrinking instead of growing in the next week that that could be the pressure that those members need? I think that's the plan as much as one exists. Yeah, I think that's the strategy. You 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 win back some of those people who, you know, we didn't necessarily expect to vote against him. People who really are looking for rules changes, who are who are trying to extort him. People who aren't never Kevin. People who don't just hate him with a passion like Bob Good and Matt Gates. Um, and if you can bring back, you know, half of the 20 and you're at nine or 10 votes uh, voting against you, um, then you've really isolated that group and you only need to pick off a handful more. And that's when you can start working time and pressure. Um, and I, so that I mean, I think that's, that's the real next thing to, to look for is does this deal that's on the table win back a sizable chunk? I mean, he's giving away a ton of stuff and he, they can't do it for just two or three votes. He's going to have to, and he's, he's been getting some criticism for sort of negotiating with himself, like lowering the threshold on motion to vacate, um, you know, making these pledges on things they're going to vote on without really securing any commitments. So he's going to have to to nail that down, cut the number of people against him in half maybe, um, and then just time and pressure, time and pressure, time and pressure. Yeah, I mean, going back to just the general dysfunction that's been going on and that will probably continue over the next two years. You know, one thing that I hesitate to to say, because, you know, obviously this is like worst case scenario, but it, it does concern me that something unexpected, you know, domestically or globally could occur while this is all playing out. You know, none of these members have been sworn in. The committees cannot get to any of their work. Um, I know there's been, you know, national security implications here. I mean, I think to an extent, you know, it's been a couple of days, but as this continues to go on, I mean, how, to me, it's, it, it does raise some serious concerns if this moves into, in two months. Yeah. 
you can't even form an ethics committee to look into George Santos. I mean, every, everything is on hold uh, until they until they come together. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, I, I heard that um, Nancy Pelosi even made the point that what if this was a presidential election year and on January 6th you had to certify the elections and we don't even have a functioning House? Um, look, there are all kinds of things that can happen. Are there any immediate deadlines? I'm not aware of that they're going to really screw anything up, but you you were talking about it yourself. I mean, imagine if they hadn't gotten an omnibus deal done at the end of last year. They punted a CR into February, and the government was going to shut down in a few weeks, and they don't even have a Speaker of the House or members. I mean, eventually this is going to become a much bigger problem, and it could, there could be something that pops up out of nowhere uh, where, where you need you need some look if congress isn't around for a couple of weeks it's usually not the end of the world they go away for five or six weeks every summer um, i don't want to make it out to be like the end of the world immediately um, but if nothing else gosh it's a bad bad look not only for the republican party but i would argue for the country i mean people are watching us and we've had enough challenges to um, transfers of power uh, standing up our, our our government and this is just kind of adds adds to the um, you know the what we used to be the example of democracy, and it's frankly along the similar similar lines. You know, people who are overwhelmingly outnumbered. The people have voted, uh, voters have voted, the House Republican Conference has voted, and you just have a small number of people who want to object because they want their way um, uh, over everybody else, and it's just not a way not a way to live. Well, and I thought it was interesting uh, juxtaposition of you know, Senator McConnell uh, celebrating with President Biden, sort of this bipartisan infrastructure victory uh, on the same day that all this chaos is going on on in the House. You know, I don't really think Leader McConnell is someone who does anything by accident. Yeah. I mean, he knows how bad this looks for the party. And this was his whole thing after the election was, you know, we have to be taken more seriously. We're being controlled by extremists. And here we are being the House taken over by, frankly, extremists. Uh, who uh, want to you know, take hostage the entire House of Representatives and are doing quote, so uh, quite successfully. And this chaos is not ending whenever this ends. Um, you know, they've set the stage. We talked about the Rules Committee and them being able to uh, stop an agenda. Um, there are plenty of other things that they're talking about that uh, you know, could uh, gum up their ability to do things. Let's one final example. They're insisting on open rules on spending bills. That sounds great. What does that mean? Uh, when an appropriation bills come, bill comes to the floor, um, it means that the rules committee will allow that once that debate kicks off, anybody can offer any amendment on that bill. Um, no limitations. Sometimes what we would do is what you would call a, um, a structured rule where uh, people file amendments ahead of time. They make a number of them in order. And so that rules committee gets to decide what, what amendments get voted on. Or in recent years, we've had a lot more of what you call closed rules, where a bill is brought to the floor and it's not allowed to be amended at all. Um, they want to go back to an open rule, and that used to be somewhat uh, of the norm. Uh, the reason it's not the norm anymore is because our politics is so messed up uh, that it ended up becoming a situation where everybody just offered poison pill amendments. They would get adopted, and then you couldn't pass the final bill, and you can't appropriate, you can't legislate anymore. Um, because people started acting in bad faith, frankly. Um, people adding amendments that they knew were designed to kill the bill, 
then, you know, their improvement in their mind. Uh, but then once it gets adopted, they don't vote for it. They're against it in the first place. Yeah, so, they just want to find an amendment that they can leverage to get attention. Yeah, or kill the bill. Um, so if he's making a promise that we're going to go back to open appropriation, open rules on appropriations bills, that's great. Let's see how that goes. I have pretty low expectations that they were going to be able to get any appropriating done in the first place. Let's see how it goes. Um, but what happened to us over a period of years was we ended up having to pull bills. So appropriations bills are done in, in 12 uh, different issues. You bring up 12 different appropriations bills. Um, and you start with what we call the easier ones, you know, the veterans affairs or legis- legislative branch operations, you know, stuff that's not too controversial and everybody's going to vote for. But as you start getting further into things that are a little more, uh, I don't know, significant, um, they become harder and harder to pass. And when people start putting up amendments that are designed to make it harder to pass, we would have to pull bills from the floor. And eventually we got to the point where we couldn't even put them on the floor because we knew they would fail. Um, so we'll see what happens. I mean, it, it, you're going to have a lot more bills coming up and failing if, if that's what they want. And it just continues to show that uh, this house uh, is, is, is not under control, frankly, by much of anybody. Yeah, I, I think I think we will see if, if that comes to fruition that you know, they are just not going to be able to move anything. Um, and we're going to have to depend a lot on on the Senate to, to continue to keep the government operating. So everybody, thank you so much for joining this week's episode of Control. Um, this is obviously a very fast moving story. We will continue to track everything that's going on and keep everybody up to date. Um, next week, I'm sure there will be some movement um, in in some respect. We we may still not have a speaker, but we will we will be ready to to break it all down with you next week. So hope you can tune in. We'll be back. Thank you. Control is a production of Seven Letter, a leading strategic communications firm in Washington D.C. and Boston, with deep experience in bipartisan public affairs, public relations, crisis management, digital strategy, and corporate engagement. Special thanks to our producer Benji Englander. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Please join us next week for another episode, and don't forget to rate and review us. Thank you for listening.